there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. first United Negro College Fund was established. Bob Marley gave his final concert at the Stanley Theater in Pittsburgh. Chevy Chase famously called Cary Grant a homo on The Tomorrow Show and got sued for it. The Big Thunder Mountain Railroad opened at Disneyland and Carl Sagan's Cosmos premiered on PBS. What happens in the first second of the next cosmic year depends on what we do here and now with our intelligence and our knowledge of the cosmos. Yet somehow, we found time for the movies that were released in September of 1980. Hi, everybody. Welcome to 80s All Over. I'm Drew McQueenie, as always, and I'm joined by my co-host, Scott Weinberg. Hi, I'm Scott Weinberg. <laughs> How did I not know that about Chevy? He called Cary Grant a homo. I looked it up, and he played it off later as a joke where he said, no, I was going to say homeowner. Yeah, he tried to play it down, but he meant it when he said it the first time. It was uh, it was kind of a big deal, and he did. He got sued shitless by Cary Grant over it. Oh, Chevy. I know. That was back when Chevy was that guy, when he was just, yeah, nothing but trouble, man. So, good news. No mistakes this month. We are not correcting any mistakes, so. No boners. No boners. We should have a song. <laughs> yes, we have no boners this week. Yum. Mm. <laughs> But we do have a great list. Yeah, Drew, why don't you jump right in and start us off with a memorable and somewhat controversial Woody Allen film? This was actually the first Woody Allen film I saw theatrically, and it's called Stardust Memories. I don't want to make funny movies anymore. They can't force me to. I, you know, I don't feel funny. I, I look around the world, and all I see is human suffering. Stardust Memories. Starring Woody Allen. Did, did anybody read on the front page of the Times that matter is decaying? Am I the only one that saw that? The universe is gradually breaking down. There's not going to be anything left. I'm not talking about my stupid little films here. Charlotte Rampling. I'm a nobody with one line part, and I, I managed to impress you just by sitting around speed reading Schopenhauer. Yeah, do you understand any of that? No, stuff? but I can fake my way through most situations. Yeah? yeah. Well, I got to tell you, I'm fatally attracted to you, so don't blow it. 
it was a major turning point. I think he he was going through an evolution as a filmmaker, and he had certainly pushed against the boundaries of what people thought of as a Woody Allen film by now. But with Stardust Memories, this is his Fellini movie. This is him doing Eight and a Half. This is him doing a, a movie about himself as a filmmaker, but also uh, his relationship with his work and with his audience. The basic premise is a filmmaker attends a retrospective of his movies, and while he's there, he's sort of going backwards and forwards in time, remembering the actresses he was with and the people that were with him on the films and the production of them. Throughout the film, there's a a refrain that everybody keeps saying to him, oh, I really liked your early funny work. And I think this is that moment where Woody was wrestling with the fact that he wanted to be something more than that. Obviously, as a kid, you know, I liked silly Woody Allen. I didn't didn't get interiors. I didn't get this so much. I mean, this is still a comedy, but it's dry, kind of acidic comedy. And I was more into... uh, everything you always wanted to know about sex. And even Annie Hall has some very good silly bits. I was surprised to to remember that I loved Annie Hall even as like a 10-year-old. That's not a movie for 10-year-olds. But uh, Stardust Memories, I, you know, dug into in my 20s because back in the day, it was there was almost a backlash against this movie as if Woody Allen was talking shit about his fans. It is kind of an indictment of fan culture in a way. But I think it's also just as an artist, it's wrestling with the sense that I, I think Woody Allen loves early funny Woody Allen. I mean, those are terrific movies, and there's certainly nothing to be ashamed of. You look at Love and Death, which I that's my personal favorite of the comedy Dude, comedy. That's so funny. I love Love and Death. And even as a kid, I knew I didn't get half the references. Yeah. I didn't get the Bergman. I didn't get the Dostoevsky. I didn't understand any of that stuff as a kid. But there is still so much broad accessible, silly stuff in Love and Death. It's a Marx Brothers film, and I think he must love and respect those movies. This is that moment where you see him really openly wrestling with it, and I think he does it in the right way. I think that the clearly by the end of this film, he has made peace with the fact that both of those filmmakers that he's talking about are him, the funny one and the more serious one. And I don't think there's ever a moment later in his career where he was one or the other. He continued to go back and forth. And I think that that was him making peace with the idea that both of those were who he is. And there is never enough Jessica Harper on film. Yeah, she's great. And what I like about the movie is that it does take swipes at the audience as if to say, yeah, I make movies. I'm not always going to make the kind of movies that you love. I might make something that is very serious. I might make something that's very broad and silly. And why do I have to be pigeonholed? You can't blame a filmmaker for for like expanding their horizons. And then uh, only a guy like Woody Allen or very few filmmakers would, would have to make a movie about that transition. And that's what I think makes Stardust Memories fascinating is that it's clearly about him in transition. Well, and it's got a lot of uh, his familiar faces as well as people that he didn't work with often. I love Charlotte Rampling in this. I think Tony Roberts, who was kind of he was the Jeffrey Lewis to Woody Allen's Clint Eastwood there for a while. Where yeah, he was his sidekick. I love Tony Roberts. Coolest voice ever. If you really want to get into his career, I would consider this a pivotal movie that you kind of have to get your head around. Because it's for him, it was a huge, huge moment. And certainly it still holds up. Yeah, underrated uh, Woody Allen film, really, of that era. You know, people always talk about Manhattan and Annie Hall and blah, blah. This one uh, is is highly underrated. Our next film, Drew, would it be okay if we call this the You Must See It for the Month? Is that okay? Yes, this is the one that holds up. This is the one that is worth 
tracking down. If you dig up anything from this episode of 80s All Overs, we implore you to make it Tony Bill's touching, beautiful, honest, and funny, My Bodyguard. You're dead. My Bodyguard, a crazy idea. I'd like you to meet my bodyguard. Anything you want to say to me, talk to him first. That led to a great friendship. This is a story of hallway horror, mayhem after math class, and the most important lesson you can learn out of school. You know, those things that stunt your growth. That strength has nothing to do with size and everything to do with courage. One of them was short. One of them was strange. Together, they were absolutely unbeatable. My bodyguard. I adore this movie. I, I think, um, first of all, it's such an eccentric moment in the career of screenwriter Alan Ormsby. You know, Alan's early work was defined more by horror. Children shouldn't play with dead things. Uh, he wrote The Cat People with Paul Schrader. He came out of that world. So My Bodyguard is this left turn for him and is so well-written and so well-crafted and very much a 70s movie all the way down the line. Like, it, from the way it's cast, to the way it's directed, to the way the humor works, it's got a heart, and yet, it's a really simple hook of an idea. Chris Makepeace uh, is a sensitive high school student who is being bullied by the evil Matt Dillon, so he hires the hulking Adam Baldwin to uh, be his bodyguard. They strike up a, a tentative friendship, but then it goes off in a couple of darker directions that you might not expect, but then it kind of comes back. It has a great turn by Ruth Gordon. It has some a couple of great moments from Martin Mull as Chris Makepeace's father. And it is just a joy. For my money, My Bodyguard is one of the best movies of the year. I would agree with you. I think it's one of those movies that when you walk into it, it does not seem like that's going to be a movie that would read to everybody the same way. But this is not a movie just for teenagers. It is a great film about how you view other people and what merit they have and what worth they have. And I love the way Adam Baldwin's character is played in this film, the way they peel him back. I love that he's an urban legend before he shows up. Like they, they tell rumors of Ricky Linderman and there's the story of what he did and everything about him is this sort of mysterious, larger than life presence before he even really becomes a character. You think it's going to be a movie about Chris Makepeace and his bully, Matt Dillon. And then you start to realize that, Hey, this big hulking guy that you thought you just hired his muscle, he's a person too. Like, just because you're the victim in a bullying incident, you're not the only human being in this equation. And they get into the idea that there's a, a sort of a using going on. And I like that at no point is it an easy relationship between them. It's not a simple transaction. It's not really a friendship. And the complicated way that continues to try to define itself is better written than a lot of what we see right now in film. Now you're making me want, I haven't seen it in probably two years and I'm just like, I would, now I want to watch it again. I showed it to the boys and. Oh yeah. What do your boys think of this? It's, it's huge. And it helps that Chris Makepeace, I showed the meatballs already for any of us who grew up in the early eighties, Chris Makepeace looked like he was going to be a giant star. It looked like he was going to be a guy we saw for the next 25 years. And he always looks like he's going to cry. And he was such a great presence as a kid like that. Those early films and the way they cast him in this and in Meatballs, uh, he is the reason that the films work in large part. Like there's something about him that is so vulnerable and interesting. And I think Matt Dillon is a really frightening bully. Yes, he is. It's the way he chips away at Chris Makepeace's Clifford character. It, it's 
not funny. It's not joking. And you can see how over time it would take a toll on somebody. Now that I'm thinking about it, this movie had to inspire three o'clock high in some way, right? I guarantee it was bouncing around in Joano's DNA when he when he put that together, because, yes, it's high noon, but it very much also has this in there. I do think like the way the writing plays out over the course of the film, what the ultimate fight is and what it's about and who it's between is even beautifully handled. I have problems with Adam Baldwin as a presence right now as a person. Yeah, I don't like his politics. I don't like his attitude. But he's a good character actor, and he's great in this movie. It's not just a good performance. It's a all-timer, great character performance, and that you can never take that away from him. It is a wonderful piece of work. Baldwin really, as a young actor, had a lot of command over what he was doing. So, yeah, this one, highest recommend possible from both of us. All right, so this next one, it's a weird movie, and it's a weird movie in a lot of ways. It is part of the Criterion Collection these days, which I find somewhat surprising it's because of the cast i think i think because of the cast but i also think it plays an interesting part in the filmmakers filmography as well we're talking about the movie hopscotch this is the most dangerous man in the world he's wanted by the cia and the fbi we're going to stop him don't you have to find him first a master of disguise and deception this is eleanor roosevelt this is a mistake Walter Matthau and Glenda Jackson in Hopscotch. Good title. Rated R. Starts tomorrow at a theater near you. I saw Hopscotch as a kid because my parents loved Walter Matthau, like most, like all sane people do. All right thinking human beings. Who yes. did, I mean, how do you see five Walter Matthau movies and not love Walter Matthau? It's literally impossible. So uh, I didn't get it as a kid. And, and I, you can already hear what you're thinking. Then I saw it probably in my 30s, maybe when Criterion put it out. And I was really pleasantly surprised. It's about a guy who is a longtime CIA agent and uh, a very good field agent. He's great at what he does. But the problem is that he really does not give a shit about bureaucracy and he rubs the upper brass the wrong way. So eventually he pisses off the wrong guy further up the food chain. And as a result, he's desked and he doesn't want to do a desk job. So he decides that what he's going to do instead is retire and write a book that's going to expose all of the CIA's biggest secrets. And he's going to publish it and they're not going to be able to stop him. And he begins to play a game where he starts mailing them chapters from around the world while he's also mailing them to publishers and getting an auction going for the rights to this book. And they have to decide how they're going to stop him and get him to shut up. This is from director Ronald Neem, who most people who are listening to this podcast, if you recognize his name, it's probably because he directed The Poseidon Adventure, but he was a very prolific filmmaker. I would argue that this is one of his best films. You've already brought up a Ronald Neem film on this podcast, Meteor. Uh, Scrooge, the Albert Finney film was him. And the one that for me is the, the Ronald Neem film that I want to make people search out. If I can do anything else on this podcast besides recommend My Bodyguard this week, I would say Find Gambit, which is a film from 1966 that Neem directed, starring Shirley MacLaine, Herbert Lom, who also appears in this, and, uh, of course, Michael Caine. And Gambit is one of the great caper comedies, I think, of the 60s and an incredibly clever screenplay. Yeah, Gambit is really clever. But so is this. And this is what's weird is the guy who wrote the book, it's by Brian Garfield, who is the writer of Death Wish. 
I've got to imagine the book is a serious CIA thriller because I don't think Garfield does light. I don't think that's who he is. That's part of the uh, the fun of the movie is just the it's not like a punchline set up punchline kind of comedy. It's more of a dry uh, acerbic kind of humor. Walter Matthau just owns every scene of this film. Well, it's just him constantly putting the screws to his former bosses, Sam Watterson and Ed Beatty, and watching him just very gradually outsmart them every step of the way and constantly just poke them in the eye is the fun of the film. And obviously, Glenda Jackson, they they did this after House Calls. House Calls was a giant hit in the late 70s, and they wanted to get those two together again in a film. I don't remember this being a giant hit. I don't know if it was or not, but it feels much lower key than I think maybe what studios would expect from you put these two giant stars together and you're going to have this big thing. It's not a caper. It really is kind of loose and shambling, and that's kind of the charm of it. And like you mentioned, no movie with Ned Beatty can be all bad. That is very true. Okay, so now if I'm going to take the the reins on that one, I'm going to let you take the reins on this one because this is a movie that I have only once ever seen, and I only made it about 45 minutes in because, once again, something about it smelled wrong to me. Throughout the history of exploitation cinema, you'll have filmmakers who, uh, when they're editing their films, they have to decide, do I want to be like hard R or do I want to be extreme and, and nasty and notorious? A lot of times when your film's not great, you'll go for the latter option. So if your film can't be really good, you might as well try and make it shocking and disturbing. This is a a rape revenge escape horror film from early trauma called Mother's Day. Now we'd like to show you some scenes from Charles Kaufman's Mother's Day. We'd like to show you the scene with the machete, but we can't. We'd love to show you the scene with the choker, the axe, the electric knife, but we can't because Mother's Day is too intense for television. The only way you'll ever see what happens is to see Mother's Day at a theater near you. Mother's Day contains scenes of violence which may be considered shocking. Under 17, not admitted without parent. Yeah, it ain't good. It's, um... It's three women go camping in the woods and they are uh, attacked by uh, two disturbing, obnoxious freaks. And then we soon learn that they are under the direction of their also psychopathic mother. Uh, And then the girls fight back and it's supposed to be cathartic and exciting that they fought back. But yet everything that came before it is so gross and unseemly and tacky. There's a lot of it that's played for laughs. Yeah. And there's like you lose the tone. It's like if you're telling a joke and you use the word fuck like a hundred times and, you know, you're you're killing it. You're overdoing it. And that's this movie goes so far with the nihilism and the brutality that when it tries to be kind of like sick, funny, it's just gross. I think that as film watchers, we've progressed past, I mean, despite the fact that there are three now remakes of I Spit on Your Grave, which... And at least one remake of this, right? Yeah, which is a much different film. And it's, it's definitely very, a post-Last House on the Left movie. That movie made such a noise when it landed that I think we got a rush of movies where they did the same thing. There's no real difference. It's just different setting, and they made them slapstickier. And it does have some infamous scenes where if you're a serious horror nut, you you know you might want to check out the original Mother's Day just so you can catch the Drano sequence or the TV smashed over the guy's head sequence. There's some fairly elaborate action beats, I guess you'd call them in this movie. And if you're looking for unapologetic exploitation, 
then this will fit that bill. The craziest thing to me about this is that, look, Charles Kaufman trauma, that's not surprising to me. But the co-writer on this, Warren Light, uh, Warren Light is one of the producers of uh, Law & Order SVU, and uh, he did In Treatment on HBO. Uh, He's a playwright. I've read lots of Warren's work, and he's a hell of a good writer. Two of his earliest produced credits are this and the sex comedy from Troma, Stuck on You. And you know what? Hats off to Warren Light, man, because he certainly jumped as far as you could from Mother's Day. Horror fans, uh, fine. Give it a shot. Everybody else, pass. It's, It's pretty gross. So next up, this is a milestone movie. This is one of those films that whether you like the film or not, the film occupies a specific landmark spot in history, and its merit is largely based on the fact that it captures a moment. Uh, I'm talking about Julian Temple's documentary, The Great Rock and Roll Swindle. At last, the film you thought you'd never have to see. The Great Rock and Roll Swindle. The staggering story of the punk group the neck of rock and roll. Sex Pistols, a kamikaze gang of cat burglars and child prostitutes, they peddled bondage whips and chains to the children of Britain. Sex Pistols, they held the record business to ransom and swindled a million pounds in the process. Stuck a safety pin through Her Majesty's nose and turned the national press into an occupied zone. If most of the material in the film is bullshit, is it a documentary still? Okay, uh, when I say documentary, I think that is the the wrapping paper on Swindle. Right, okay, a, a purported documentary. It is too documentary what Sex Pistols were to pop music. It is a utter destruction of whatever it was that they set out to make. It is not a music video. It's not a documentary. It's not a concert film. It's well, I mean, uh, it's an indictment of the sex pistols from their former manager, correct? Yes. And at the same time, I think it embodies the uh, spirit of the sex pistols in ways that are just as valid as anything the band did. I think they are of a piece. I think if you are going to look at the sex pistols and understand who they are, great rock and roll swindle is a really interesting part of that Rosetta stone. Because it was somebody who was there, somebody who was part of that with them, somebody who was one of the architects of what the Sex Pistols were. Wouldn't you say, though, that like fans of the Sex Pistols uh, would say that this is a hatchet job? Look, I think if you take this and you put The Filth and the Fury, his documentary that came out a full 20 years later, and you put the two side by side, you, you will get a complete picture of who they are. But I think this is a very valid moment in their history that is strange and abrasive and unpleasant and it's a thumb in the eye and i don't know that i would necessarily recommend it just as a movie but as part of the sex pistols legend it's sort of essential text so sex pistols fans should probably check out the great rock and roll swindle whether you love it or hate it you'll probably be fascinated by it because you are a sex pistols fan from what i've gleaned about the film it was not warmly embraced by the fans of the band No, this is because this is after the breakup. So this is a movie that is, as the fans are already disappointed, this is a movie that came out and more than anything, rubs salt in the wound for them, I think. If you're at all interested in their history and interested in the history of punk in general, 
Uh, it's a pretty important film and something you should see. All right. Well, you know what film is not important? Schizoid. Sick with revenge. Twisted with hate. <laughs> Stop me if you've heard this one. It's about a group of people in psychotherapy who start getting knocked off and through their own worst fears. I believe this was done again later in Mind Hunters. I believe it was done again in Color of Night. It stars Klaus Kinski, Christopher Lloyd, Craig Wasson, and Angel herself, Donna Wilkes. Uh, yeah, this is one of those movies that's uh, made by a guy who basically did very little else. And uh, he did a movie called Savage Weekend before this. And then he did a bunch of Aaron Spelling television afterwards. It's largely, I think, known at this point because of Klaus Kinski and because of the cast. And Shout Factory actually put it out as a double feature with something else recently. I um, love Shout Factory. Always support their stuff. But when Shout Factory puts something on a double feature, that tells you something about the film's quality. <laughs> They uh, they it's dull, it's talky, it's considering what that cast is, you would you would hope that it would be uh crazier. At least fun bad. No, it's not. And it, it we covered this a few weeks ago. It's the transition from we're gonna make oh, slasher movies are hot. It's uh, somebody stabbing people and you get to see some gore. Other than that, it's your standard TV movie of the week, who done it? It's way too much shoe leather for the payoff you get. And, and that's, yeah, you nailed it. That's exactly what it is. What do we have to fill the time between kill sequences? And if we put on the, the ruse of a mystery film, then all right, now we got enough shoe leather to fill all that time. How many times can we cut to the, the police or to the suspect or to the girl or to the doctor? You know, right. A procedural takes up time. Uh, that's why a lot of procedurals are two and a half hours. So if you if you have a bunch of kills, um, yeah, and, and then we have another kill. And we cut to the cop. Invest uh, uh, schizoid, skipoid. Ha! See what I did? I said skip. <laughs> All right, our next film starring a very funny man. Not so much when he was left to his own devices. Here's the thing: like I, the the success of the early Mel Brooks films, and specifically Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein, that that run of stuff, enabled almost everybody that was involved with them to suddenly be bankable and to have some commercial clout. And so Gene Wilder went and he made his movies like, you know, the world's greatest lover and uh, the adventures of Sherlock Holmes, smarter brother. And in this case, Marty Feldman went and made in God, we trust. Although I think you don't, you technically pronounce it in God, we trust dollar sign to. Yeah. There's a dollar sign in there because I don't understand that. That's social commentary. Well, it's a movie about <laughs> they're mocking televangelism. So money, money. Welcome to a world of professional healers and double dealers, celestial grace and a pretty face from damnation to salvation. Experience the motion picture that commands you to see the light on your theater screen and put your faith in Marty Feldman, Peter Boyle, Louise Lasser, Richard Pryor, and Andy Kaufman. In God We Trust. Rated Peter. Starts today at a theater near you. Check your local newspaper for showtimes. 
when when Marty Feldman worked with Mel Brooks, the guy was a genius. But uh, maybe not necessarily a writer director, because when you know when he's the center point of the film, if anybody was made to be sidekick comic relief, it's Marty Feldman, and I say that with respect. I think Life of Brian is, was a big influence on all these biblical comedies, where they went really, really edgy and really far with their with, with Life of Brian. And then we get all these really limp, lethargic, like Holy Moses, and now this one, and God We Trust. And it's like, oh, biblical satires are hot right now. And they just banged out a bunch of cheap ones. Well, and here's the thing. If you're going to be biting, their target is a very good one, which is televangelism, which is totally different than religion. And I think that that's where people get confused. Televangelism is salesmanship and con artistry and bullshit. Religion is a different thing. And I, I feel like this this is a, a movie that should have been um, really pointed and angry because you've got such a, a perfect target to, to aim at, which is Armageddon T. Thunderbird, who is Andy Kaufman's character. Yeah, and he's wasted in that role. He's not they don't give him anything really funny to do. As usual, Peter Boyle is the best thing in a mediocre film. Peter Boyle is kind of becomes uh, Marty Feldman's sidekick throughout the, they hate each other at first, but then they join forces to take down the televangelism. There's a budding romance with a prostitute played by Louise Lasser. There's a kind of a twist involving Richard Pryor as God. You're, you're in an era where the best versions of social satire either look like network with Patty Chayefsky writing where it's angry and it's savage and it just gets its teeth in what it's talking about or blazing saddles with Mel Brooks, which is, blisteringly angry at times, but really, really funny, and it makes it palatable. I feel like this is a movie that should have hit harder, should have been that kind of a film, and wants to be. It feels like I think Feldman would have liked to have made a film that had some teeth to it. It's a satire that plays like a weak farce, when it should have been a lot edgier and a lot angrier. Now we move on to a horror film that evaded me for several years, and I was always fascinated by digging it up. I couldn't find it, and I had heard it was notoriously bad, and it was directed by the legendary John Huston. Drew, what do you know about Phobia? Well, it's interesting because like, there was an early version of this that started with Gary Sherman and Ronald Shusett, and I like Gary Sherman a lot. I'm fascinated by him as a horror filmmaker. Great, great. If you've never seen Dead and Buried, people, don't wait till our 1982 episodes. Go get Dead and Buried. That and Rami, he's a really interesting guy who I think never quite got his ass into the mainstream the way he wanted to. And it's a and shame. And Ronald Shusett co-wrote Alien. I think there was like an early version of this that might have been an interesting film. It ain't this one, though. A group of patients in psychotherapy start getting knocked off uh, by their most uh, common fears. You know, I, I think one of the problems that uh, that you have with a movie like Phobia is if you're going to make a film like this, you have to have a charismatic center. And the charismatic center of this film is Paul Michael Glazer, which I'm sorry. It's rough going. Sorry. You know who else co-wrote this movie? Jimmy Sangster. Jimmy Sangster is a very prolific screenwriter for Hammer. So looking back on it now, you'd go, wow, directed by John Huston, co-written by Gary Sherman, Ron Shusett, and Jimmy Sangster. This must be buried treasure. Nope. Huston's been making films since the 40s. And at this point, he was 39 years into his career. He was definitely starting to wind down. But... There were some good Houston films at the end of his career. Oh, he still had Pritzi's Honor in him, so he wasn't that old. <laughs> and Under the Volcano is, it's an interesting miss. And I think even Victory is an interesting film. 
Phobia just is, he is off his game here. And at some point, everybody must have felt like they were in prison. Not a good movie. Phobia and Schizoid, worst double feature of the month. Our next film, I would say one of Robert Altman's rare misfires. It came right in the middle of a great run of films for him. But I think the way he made movies at that point, it was inevitable that he would have some that just didn't cut together because you're dealing with such chaos. And that is the point. He loved chaos. I don't think it really works. I think his target is great. I think he misses the mark, though. This film is called Health. And like in God We Trust, this is the hardest week to write the actual titles of the films correctly because it's H-E-A-L-T capital H. And that's the actual title of the movie. It stars Glenda Jackson, Lauren Bacall, Carol Burnett, James Garner, the great Paul Dooley, and the amazing uh, young Alfred Woodard. It's a mishmash uh, satire of American politics in which two women are vying for the presidency of. Um, it's a political uh, sort of like PAC organization, but it's set against the backdrop of a health food convention that is going on. It is meant to be his roasting of campaigns and what political campaigns had become at that time. But he picked the lowest stakes world to have the highest stakes fight. And I think that's that was the thing that he liked was they're fighting like it's for the presidency of the U.S. And it's for this. It's for something so inconsequential. I would call it a Robert Altman rare misfire. The worst of Robert Altman films are still oddly appealing. Even his misfires, he has so jam packed with stuff and people and I like that shambling, weird energy that is Robert Altman. I understand people who don't, but I think ever since I first got it, I just kind of enjoy spending time in a Robert Altman world. Like, I like the way he uses his camera. I like the way he stages his scenes. Yeah, and most Robert Altman films, you feel like when the movie starts, you've been dropped into a profession or a realm or a, a microcosm that you're not familiar with. You know, you have to catch up with the, with, with the characters. They're, his character development is like already in progress. Yeah, health is a, again, a Robert Altman misfire, but if you like Robert Altman, I wouldn't say avoid it. Right. In moving on, we talked a couple of weeks ago about a very silly movie called The Return that was directed by a guy named Graydon Clark, who also directed a movie that I know you were very excited to finally get your hands on when you got a okay. chance to see it. Yeah. The alien terror is here on Earth. <laughs> and the only ones who've seen it for their lives. <laughs> Without warning, rated R. Here's my story about Without Warning. I was in an, an, a movie theater in 1980. Don't remember what I was seeing. Probably Empire Strikes Back. I'm, what, eight years old. I look up and I see a poster. I'd like you to pause this podcast and throw into Google, without warning, 1980 poster. Now, wouldn't you see that movie? I was fascinated by it. I wanted to see it so bad. It bombed, never came out, and it played for probably a week in Philly. Then it was never on VHS. I don't think it's ever been released on VHS. I saw this poster in 1980. I think I finally tracked this film down in 2012. And it's got Jack Palance, Martin Landau, Neville Brand, uh, Cameron Mitchell, and a young David Caruso. And it's about aliens attacking people and killing them. This was my holy grail of genre films. And it's terrible. 
<laughs> Over 30 years, I off and on looked for this film, couldn't find it anywhere. And then I saw it and it looks like something that was shot in someone's basement and they glued teeth onto Frisbees and threw them at each other. I look at the film and my first thought is Florida. I don't know if it was shot there or not, but it feels like Florida. It feels uh, cheap. Have you seen this recently? I, I was going to ask you, does it bug you? That it's on Blu-ray and you can just buy it on Blu-ray at Best Buy, knowing how long you had to look to find it. Does does that? I would just love just would love to know how a movie avoids being released on VHS. That's what I'd love to know. A 1980 horror sci-fi film. I don't care if it made five dollars in theaters. Everything got on VHS. And I, I think that if I had seen it, I think if I had seen it in 1980, I would have I, even as a kid, I would have gotten that this is really shoddy. Well, you know that the uh, you know that the alien that's on the poster that you're talking about the the one big alien with the big head, it's a Rick Baker build. It's not. It can't do anything really. It's just a mask. It's just a head. The actual little things in the movie, the flying things, are pretty silly. Uh, but yeah, without warning, I, I wish that we had a happier ending. It's not good. And here's the most disconcerting thing, based on the fact that this movie genuinely looks like it was shot on the cellophane that you pull off of American cheese slices. Like it is so cheap and awful. And it was uh, photographed by Dean Cundy looking in the wrong end of the camera based on this. All right. So moving on this next one, this was a big deal in my house because my mom was a big fan of Bette Midler. She was super excited when Michael Ritchie's divine madness opened in theaters. In these troubled times, what this country needs is someone who will say exactly what you're thinking. And not only that, do it to music. Now, caught live in the act on film, Beth Midler is... I tickled myself. Divine Madness. Yeah, this is something that I wouldn't have watched as a kid for whatever reason. I, I assumed it was all musical, but it's not. There's also a lot of good comedy in there. And it's just basically all bet all night for 90 minutes with some backup singers and dancers. And she's just when you see somebody who has like that many different talents, you know, could be it could be Judy Garland. It could be Gene Kelly, Bette Midler. You look at somebody and they're funny and they can act and they can sing and they have the audience in the palm of their hand. She is uh, she's great in this. I wish that she had done other concert films. My exposure of it was the album because my parents were big fans of this. My mom got the album and played the album at the house and the album had some of the comedy on it, like had some of the jokes and she does a run at one point of Sophie Tucker jokes and Sophie Tucker was an early stand up, uh, a female performer who told raunchy jokes on stage. One of them, when she, uh, she told and I always remembered it as the first Bette Midler joke that got me. Did, did she just say what I think she just said? Um, uh, she said that her, uh, her boyfriend, Ernie, said to her the other night in bed, Sophie, you have no tits and a tight box. And she says, Ernie, get off my back. And uh, <laughs> that was that one joke was enough to make me stop and go, I'm sorry, what? And it was not what I thought Bette Midler was. I thought Bette Midler was just show tunes. The film itself, it really is a breathtaking performance by her she was a powerhouse on stage it's not just a uh, camera planted in the back and point at the stage michael ritchie keeps the movie moving along quickly it's a very entertaining concert film once people saw this they realized oh she can do anything 
you know, she was known, obviously, she started in gay bathhouses was, I think, where uh, she broke through as a performer and then gradually kept getting more and more famous to the off-Broadway thing. Then that's what got her more attention than the concert tours. And this was from the concert show that she had finally developed. But you're right. I think this was the moment where on film it was clear that she's really funny and she holds the camera. It's just her, basically, for the whole film, and she never stops entertaining in the entire film. So far in this podcast, which we started in 1980, we've already covered two concert films for female comedians, Guild Alive and now this. Why don't we see more of these today? We sure don't get, you know, movies like Divine Madness anymore. You could give a show like Divine Madness to the wonderful woman who created Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, Rachel Bloom. Give Rachel Bloom a concert film like Divine Madness. And also another check in the box for Michael Ritchie, a director we will get to many times in this podcast, whom I, I believe you do, but I also adore. He did Fletch. He did Wildcats. He did all kinds of good stuff with from Michael Ritchie. He has passed away since, and uh, he is missed. And he covered a lot of ground. You're right. Yeah, uh, yeah. He did Downhill Racer. He did lots. Of, he did mostly comedy, but he could do anything. And speaking of somebody who can do anything, our next film is called the exterminator. <laughs> Vietnam, a nightmare of terror and brutality. In the rage of battle, they found the strength to kill, and their friendship became the key to survival. Now they've come home to a city under siege, and when one falls victim to a different kind of violence, the other becomes a new soldier in a new kind of war. The Exterminator. His targets are the pushers, the perverts, the pimps. For too long they've been beyond the law. Now they're beyond help, unless they can stop the Exterminator. The streets of New York are about to experience a shock because a one-man army is fighting back. The Exterminator, the man they pushed too far. When you talk about exploitation, there's such different flavors. Like, we've talked about trauma so far this week, and trauma is a very particular kind of exploitation film. If you say trauma to me, it's fart jokes, it's gross, it's very juvenile it's super 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 cheap there's a thing that they do that it kind of defines them james glickenhouse who directed this i could argue he had a real signature and robert ginty versus christopher george i'm sorry but that's a b-movie battle made in heaven right there oh robert ginty yeah this is robert ginty is one of those guys who b-movie royalty legend yeah and this is one of the things that kind of inspired this podcast is that when you would go to school and it was the day after something showed on UHF. And that's generally what my friends and I talked about. And I'm not kidding. There is a scene in this film involving a meat grinder that we talked about in recess for probably two weeks. Yeah, we just couldn't get over the meat grinder scene. And, you know, yeah, it is very simplistic and very basic, but it's well-made B-movie revenge trash. It is well-made. Yeah. And it's, look, this is, you know, if uh, Mother's Day is somebody doing Last House on the Left and chasing that success, this is Death Wish 100%. But it's that escalation thing where it can't be Death Wish because Death Wish was lower key than this. If you're going to rip something off, like most people don't remember that, you know, Death Wish does have some nasty stuff in it, but Death Wish is mostly a psychological thriller about a guy 
It's it's about the nature of revenge. Whereas these movies go, oh, we don't need any of that character beats. We just need, rah, he hurt my Vietnam buddy. Let's kill everyone. Rah. And that's and it. And very graphically. Let's um, drop a guy in a meat grinder. Rah. If, if you ever get a chance, if you do see this film and you like it, check out Shakedown, which was a late 80s film by him that we'll get to later. I like that one a lot. I actually think Shakedown is pretty good. Is that the Peter Weller, uh, uh, Sam Elliott? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. I think Blickenhaus was a guy who uh, did not really find his niche. And it's a shame. I think with the right producer, he could have been a bigger exploitation name. Yeah, or even gotten into, you know, higher end action films. You know, he definitely had an eye. Uh, next is a thriller that if you had asked me when I was a kid what I thought of this movie, I would have said, oh, I don't like it. It's boring. If you ask the adult me what I think of this horror thriller, I would say it's freaking great. There is a line between life and death. Resurrection. It's not supposed to happen. Be there when it does. Resurrection. Rated PG. I remember the way it was sold, and it was not at all the film that I expected when I went in. It's interesting that you call it a horror film, because I... I don't know what I call well, it. Dark- it's a horror film in the same kind of sense that The Dead Zone is a horror film, in that Ellen Burstyn plays a woman who uh, she can heal people after she's had a horrible car accident. She finds that she can heal people, and then it's like how she turns into like a pariah in a way. And that's what I mean in the in the realm that it has some supernatural elements and it has like the psychological hook of now she's an outsider. But no, as far as like, boo, scary horror. No, it's definitely not that kind of horror. It falls into this weird magical realism thing because there's certainly something going on with her uh, the, when she gets her powers and when she's able to actually heal people and she cures herself at one point. Part of the movie is about people poking at that and there's there's somebody who's trying to figure out what happened to her and where the powers are coming from and whether or not it's religious daniel petrie who directed this was a guy that made pretty crummy films in the 70s and i think this is the one where he really got it right it's a a really good screenplay well dude it's the same guy who wrote the great santini it's smart and it deals with issues of faith and it's the casting is so good it's sam shepard richard farnsworth People who are really strong actors opposite Ellen Burstyn, who's one of our greats. Yeah, I, I want to take back my horror designation, and I would just call it an ethereal thriller. How about that? I, huh. I like the fact that you called it that. It's it, it's just interesting because I, I wouldn't have necessarily thought of it like that. But it is definitely a sense of dread about what it was and where it came from. And, and it goes to some unexpected places. It's a, it's a clever film, and I firmly recommend Resurrection. Especially coming out the same month as In God We Trust, which is so toothless in dealing with ideas about televangelism and faith healing and all this. Here's a movie genuinely about faith healing that I I think has the courage of its convictions and goes all the way in telling that story. All right, our next film. I'm having a complicated reaction this week, and I'm disappointed about it. Oh, that's why you asked if there were ever films you liked and then kind of didn't upon revisit. And I don't dislike this movie, but I had a very different reaction than I used to. Suddenly become rich, your whole life changes. People are friendly, and all your problems are over. Just ask Melvin. Howard Hughes left him $156 million. (laughs) Melvin and Howard, rated R. Okay, so I had a very, very different impression of this film when I was young. It is a movie about a guy named Melvin Dumar who was driving through the desert one night, he says, 
picked up a guy on the side of the road uh, who looked like he had been in an accident, drove him into Vegas. And as he drove him in, they talked. He made the guy sing a song with him. They chatted. And finally, the guy confessed that he was Howard Hughes and that he had wrecked a motorcycle and that he was going to go back to his hotel. And he wanted to thank Melvin. When Howard died, a will mysteriously appeared, which named Melvin Dumar as a recipient of some of Howard Hughes's estate, $150 million. The validity of that will obviously was disputed. But here's the thing. If you go look at the story, the real story about the will, it was never totally rectified. Nobody knows what happened with Howard Hughes's will exactly. It is a bizarre story. And I always thought of that as what this movie was about, because at the beginning of the movie, we get the incident with uh, Howard Hughes and Melvin, and he drives them all the way in. And then at the end of the film, there's a little bit about the will. 90% of this movie has nothing to do with Howard Hughes, and that's what I didn't really remember. I like that other movie that's in here, and it reminds me a lot of Citizen's Band, uh, the earlier Jonathan Demme film. It reminds me of uh, the way Spielberg also would direct his family stuff in Jaws or Close Encounters. There's sort of a rowdy sense of life to the way Jonathan Demme presents struggling to make ends meet life in the late 70s, early 80s in this film. And I like that. I like that film a lot, but it's got nothing to do with the one that I thought it was. Yeah, this film was written by Bo Goldman, who had previously won an Oscar for uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and he also won the screenplay Oscar for this. Well, and Bo Goldman was obsessed with Howard Hughes. He actually was the guy who Warren Beatty hired in 1976 and announced, I'm making a Howard Hughes movie, and I'm going to be doing the giant sprawling biopic of Howard Hughes, and Bo Goldman will write it. And it was a big deal because this was right on the heels of the Oscar win for Cuckoo's Nest. So Goldman was as big a writer as there was in the business at that time. This screenplay was something totally different. If you look at the screenplay credits for Rules Don't Apply, Warren Beatty's film that just came out that has Howard Hughes as a character, Goldman has a co-screenplay credit on it. Goldman has had Hughes on his mind for most of his career. So he's uh, basically Hollywood's resident Howard Hughes historian. Yeah, I think there's just been an itch that he has constantly been looking to figure out. And I, I would assume The Aviator is a very frustrating film for him because that's not his movie. And it's the one that he had been trying to make forever. I think there were a lot of guys chasing that particular target, Goldman being the main one. Dialogue wise, it's got a very strong screenplay. The, the banter between Jason Robards and Paul Lamatt. Uh, is great. It's just there's punchy, smart dialogue throughout the well, movie. Well, I love that opening sequence, and it's a mini movie all by itself. And I, I think it works beautifully. I think uh, Robard is really, really interesting. The movie about Melvin Dumar not being very good with money and burning through his marriage twice, and uh, the sort of him trying to make ends meet as a milkman and as a writer of songs and whatever, that stuff is great. And it gives a vehicle to one of my favorite underrated actors, Paul Lamatt. I just don't think, aside from American Graffiti and this, I don't think people really ever knew what to do with Paul Lamatt because he's very much a normal guy and terrific in this. Uh, just double checking on that screenplay, Oscar, I noticed that Mary Steenburgen also won an Oscar for this film. She steals many scenes as one of uh, Melvin's wives. And it, uh, it also features a small role from the uh, brilliant, wonderful late Michael J. Pollard. Oh, he's so good. And Mary Steenburgen is you are introduced to actors at different points in their lives. So sometimes you have a relationship with an actor where you knew them primarily as an old person. And then you later find out they were in movies when they were younger and you go back and you look and you go, Angela Lansbury was hot. Holy cow. And it blows your mind. 
Mary Steenburgen in this is early 20s and cannot keep her clothing on. And she's hilarious here in the way she uses her body and in the way she is sort of a big giant dingbat with a very sweet heart. And it's it's a nice performance. I understand why I put her on the map. I just wish that I thought the two films actually worked together. I think the Howard Hughes thing at the end with the will feels like a different movie that's only 11 minutes long and doesn't give me any of the answers I would like. And speaking of Oscars, that brings us to our final film. They are people like you in a town like yours. They have problems you'll recognize and feelings you'll share. They're a mother, a father, a boy, and a girl. They're ordinary people. Now, the most acclaimed motion picture of 1980 has been nominated for six Academy Awards, including Best Picture of the Year. Ordinary People, rated R. Yeah, this is, you know, this is a big one. This obviously won Best Picture that year and put Robert Redford on the map as a director as well as an actor. And I think changed the way people thought of Mary Tyler Moore, which was no small feat considering she was already an icon by this point. Timothy Hutton won an Oscar for this movie, but the whole cast, I mean, Donald Sutherland, Mary Tyler Moore, uh, M. Emmett Walsh, Elizabeth McGovern. Um, it's adapted from a novel by Judith Guest and Alvin Sargent, who is one of our great hardworking nuts and bolts screenwriters, a guy who just is uh, over and over again, demonstrates a uh, nimble wit and he's very good with his craft and, uh, his screenplay here is terrific. You talk about the relationships you have when you're young with a movie and then the relationships you have later with them. Um, I had a chip on my shoulder about ordinary people for at least 15 years because it beat Raging Bull for Best Picture. It beat some other uh, some some other really good films. It, obviously, Raging Bull is a better film than than ordinary people. And so is The Elephant Man. Having said that. <laughs> Hollywood is really good at making big budget, big star soap opera melodramas. And that's what this is. It is a sincere, heartfelt look at a an affluent family who loses one of their sons in him and how they deal with it and how the family either comes together or falls apart. In some ways, it builds for the same kind of payoff as something like Goodwill Hunting, where it is a film about whether or not you're ever going to reach a place of forgiveness for something. If you're going to make a film like that work or a story like that work, both sides of that power struggle have to be compelling. And that's where this movie works, because Timothy Hutton, it's one of the great young man performances. There's a reason it made him suddenly acclaimed and put him on the map and made him bankable. And everybody wanted to work with him because he does incredibly great work here. One of the reasons he's so good is he plays opposite Mary Tyler Moore, who unleashed the bitch side of Mary Tyler Moore in a way that we didn't even fathom she could do. You have to remember who she was. She was Mary Tyler Moore from the Dick Van Dyke show where she was the 60s housewife. You can totally sense that her agent and her said, Find me a good screenplay where I can play against type. I want to do something different. The best case scenario is a film like this. Well, and her relationship with Donald Sutherland as her husband is equally interesting. And Sutherland is one of the great screen freaks. I love watching Donald Sutherland and watching the choices he makes. I would watch Donald Sutherland mow his lawn. <laughs> and so you get him playing the husband who's trying to hold everything together versus her as the most brittle, difficult, cold, sharp person. That's going to be compelling. Redford, the best thing he does as a director here, uh, he has... Great taste in music because he made Paco Bell's Canon and B into an biggest of big sort of music cues for movies after this. 
And uh, he makes incredible space for actors. He's very, very good at giving uh, his actors room to play these scenes and to really dig into the meat of them. Where would you put this film on the grand scale of Best Picture winners? It's not an embarrassing Best Picture winner. It's no crash. This is not a movie where you look back at it and you go, oh, my God, what was the Academy doing that year? This one I look at, and I can understand exactly why people had a reaction to it. It also was one of the films that introduced Elizabeth McGovern. I would like to say in the early 80s, probably between about 80 and 84, may be the cutest human being who has ever walked the earth. So it, it it's an introduction for so many people and for many of the actors involved, a high watermark in their work. I, I can't help but think a movie like this would almost have a better shelf life if it hadn't won Best Picture, because then it would just be, hey, do you guys remember Ordinary People? That's a really underrated, tragic melodrama. But now when it's a Best Picture winner, you kind of approach a Best Picture winner like with your arms crossed saying, you better impress me. It beat Raging Bull, for Christ's sake. An Elephant Man. <laughs> you know, but again, Ordinary People, we could definitely recommend. It is not something I would have had any interest in as a kid, and I'm glad I saw it as an adult. And and I think that's the thing, is it's especially as I got older, I appreciate a lot of what the movie's about, because I, I think it's getting at some very real things about forgiveness within families and how hard that can be. Drew, I have a question. Sure. What are we going to cover next month? Oh, my God, dude. It's so good. Next month is so good. I can't believe October isn't normally what I think of as a big movie month. October 1980 is bananas. Are you ready for Christopher Reeve traveling in time? Are you ready for George Burns and a terrible little girl? Are you ready for a Paul Simon movie? Oh my God, there's so many good things. Akira Kurosawa, The Elephant Man. It's going to be crazy, guys. And Goldie Hawn and Private Benjamin. I, I can't wait. We will see you back here in two weeks with what I am sure is going to be one of the most interesting episodes we've done so far. Let's uh, drop a guy in a meat grinder. Rah!